Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The big story that we've been hearing about for the past four weeks now is that of the partial government shutdown. The president has been making his case, trying to make his case for a border wall, the need to get $5 billion in funding from Democrats, all for border security. The president addressed the nation from the Oval Office on Tuesday night to make his plea for the border wall, addressing the humanitarian crisis there. He struck a more measured tone, trying to peel emotionally rather than trying to use too many facts and figures. A lot of that stuff had already been debunked throughout the week. The Democratic response, on the other hand, from Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi accused the president of using the Oval Office to manufacture a crisis. We heard the word crisis thrown around so much. We spoke to Amanda Becker. She's a correspondent for Reuters to talk about the effectiveness of the address and whether it moved the needle at all. In the past couple of days, we have heard President Trump starting to use the phrase humanitarian crisis, and he continued to do that, really painting a portrait of what's happening on the U.S.-Mexico border that is perhaps a little bit more sympathetic to the people who have made that journey and who are attempting to cross into the U.S. Right off the top, he talked about how it strains public resources and drives down jobs and wages, and he said, quote, among those hardest hit are African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans. Our southern border is a pipeline for vast quantities of illegal drugs, including meth, heroin, cocaine, and fentanyl. He later said, this is an, and this is another quote, this is a humanitarian crisis, a crisis of the heart and a crisis of the soul. So this is much different language than we've heard him using in the past, but it did little to change the underlying issue here, which is that the Democrats do not believe that a wall would be effective. Many of them believe it to be something that's immoral to build a barrier like that along the border. And it really doesn't get them any closer together in terms of actual negotiation. And the president even mentioned that as much, saying, you know, walls are not immoral. A lot of people think it is. Then why do these people have walls built around their homes and things like that? He said the walls are in place to protect the people that we love. Trying to say that we need this barrier on the border because we need to protect Americans, people that we love. He did try to not give too many facts and figures during the address. I'm sure it's because a lot of people have already been picking apart things that have been coming out of the administration. So he was trying to stick on that more emotional tone than really going off with a lot of numbers. The last thing that he wanted was to give this address and then have every number pulled apart and proven to be incorrect, you know, and given Pinocchio's the next day or 10 minutes after. And a lot of the networks said that they were going to try and do live fact checking. Yeah. Exactly. When they decided to air this address. So there's a very good reason why he did stick to this more emotional tone and did not cite some of the more controversial figures than he has in the past. And even when you're talking, he was talking about building walls. A lot of wealthy Americans have built walls to protect themselves. And his administration had, I think, a week or so ago. You know, it's hard to keep track of the timeline of all this. I've been talking about how President Obama had built a wall around his house. And that, of course, immediately was proven to be incorrect because people went and published pictures of the Obama's house and there's no wall. So he was trying to keep things kind of amorphous and emotional and not talk about hard facts as much. 
Speaking about money really quick, he wants $800 million to improve care for families at the border. That is the humanitarian crisis that is being spoken of. But he's still holding firm on that $5.7 billion for a steel fence, not a concrete wall anymore. Let's move on to the Democratic response. Democrats, the optics of it, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer looked very angry at the start of their response. And they accused the president of using the Oval Office to manufacture a crisis. Crisis was thrown around so many times on both sides. From their perspective, this was a stunt. They requested time for a rebuttal to not have that be the last word out there. The overall thrust of their response was that, you know, if you want to keep talking about this, negotiating about this, fine, but don't say that we're keeping the government shut down because we could pass these partial spending bills to reopen the government and still talk about the border security component of this and not have all these people suffering needlessly. There are 800,000 people not receiving paychecks right now who are employed of the federal government, and even more when you start to think about contractors and businesses that support workers of the federal government. So they really just want to get the government back open, whether it takes doing something piecemeal and talking more about the border security component with the White House. The president is going to be going to the border in Texas in the next couple days to McAllen, Texas, where a lot of people have been to. We've seen a lot of images from that part of the border. I think it would have been a lot more effective if he went to the San Isidro port of entry, where a lot of this stuff is happening. He could have made a, a far better case with his presence there. In the end, does this move the needle on any side for anybody? It feels like it was lukewarm responses on both sides from the president and the Democrats. I don't think anybody's going to be swayed either way. I agree. I mean, I don't know who on the other side in either case would come away from either the president's address or the Democratic rebuttal saying, you know what, I think after all this, this changed my mind on this topic. I think that the Trump supporters who want a wall, who were promised a wall in the election, are still going to want a wall. I think the Democrats who oppose it are still going to oppose it. And so the winning argument still seems to be, let's get this government shutdown ended. Let's reopen the government and then continue to negotiate on the wall. I know the president doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to go through that. But as you just alluded to a little bit ago, as soon as these federal workers don't get their money, don't get anything in their paychecks, those are going to be dominating headlines. And then it's just be a a bigger problem for Republicans. I've seen all over the place that the possibility of the president declaring a national emergency seems to be the easy way out for everybody. That way, the Republicans can say, well, we never caved. And we open reopened the government, at least. And same thing for the Democrats is nobody caves. And Trump is going crazy on his own, declaring a national emergency, which is almost certain to face legal scrutiny. I don't think declaring a national emergency right now is wanted by Republicans or Democrats, at least outside the White House. From the Democratic standpoint, of course, they would immediately challenge it, either using their congressional authority or in the court. Even some Republican Senate leaders have said, we think that would really poison these negotiations. And so if it did fall apart under legal challenge, then they'd be at even more of a standoff over this issue and wouldn't be able to move forward. Perhaps the fact that he did not mention it tonight means that the White House is backing off of that idea as well. We will just have to wait and see on that. Crazy times. The conversation of national security and border security continues and the partial government shutdown seems to have no end in sight still. Amanda Becker covering Congress and the Trump administration for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. After the president's address from the Oval Office, things intensified a little bit. The president visited the border at McAllen, Texas, just to the conversation continued to swirl around whether he would declare a national emergency to get the border wall built that way. The question there becomes, where does that money come from? The Pentagon was 
readying a bunch of plans to see what they could do. The Army Corps of Engineers would have to design and contract from there to build the walls. There was late news that the border wall money could be taken from disaster funds. This is a pool of money that's meant for areas of the U.S. hit by disasters like Texas from the hurricanes, uh, Puerto Rico, California with the wildfires. So that also was thrown into the mix. For more on this, we spoke to Haley Britsky. She's a reporter for Axios. And we started off by talking about what would happen if the president did declare a national emergency? What Axis has reported is that right now is still on the table as one of the most viable options that the president is looking at. And it's something that really worries a lot of conservatives, especially in the legal community, who see this as a dangerous precedent to set for if there is a Democratic president in the future who decides to use a national emergency to get something done on their agenda. And so the president said before he left for Texas that if there isn't a deal made, it would be very surprising to him if he did not declare national emergency. So we know that that's something the president is really thinking strongly about, and it's something that is still very much on the table, despite him not bringing it up in his national address earlier this week. But it's something, again, that, that Republicans, I know Marco Rubio, I said, I believe earlier this week that, you know, a Democrat could use a national emergency to tackle climate change. And they're worried about, you know, the things that would come with that. And so it's something that is really making a lot of conservatives uneasy. There's all sorts of stuff that goes into declaring the national emergency. He has to declare which powers exactly he's using. Using to declare it, he has to explain what the emergency is. Reports are saying that a lot of his advisors are pushing for the emergency, already knowing that it's going to get stopped in court. They're saying it's just this mechanism to be able to say, we're going to get the wall built, it can be stopped in court, but at least we can reopen the government after. So it's just interesting how they're trying to play this. I think the way the thinking is, is he's going to declare the emergency, courts will intervene and stay the order, then Congress can reopen the government while the case is being litigated. At least he did something about it. I think what we have to remember when we think about this, especially with the national emergency, is that at the core of this, the wall was always one of the president's most prominent promises to the American people and to the people that he voted for him. It's something that he's been saying from day one he wanted to get done. And so we have Congress not backing down. So the president is looking at what are his options so that he isn't seen as backing down. And if that means declaring a national emergency and being stopped in court and, and, you know, having that process unfold before him, then that's something he may be willing to do simply as a way to point to something tangible to say, I tried to get this promise accomplished for my voters. I tried to get this done um, as I've been talking about it for so long. So it really is a strong possibility that this could happen down the road. Reports are also saying that the Pentagon is already preparing some options to build barriers on the southern border. If the emergency declaration goes through there, it would be up to the Army Corps of engineers to design the barriers and then they'll contract with others to build them. But then the money comes out of the Pentagon fund there. And I think I've read that they have about $13 billion of money. So they only need the $5.7 billion, but that takes away from money that, uh, you know, if they need to build emergency barracks for soldiers or something like that. So this switching around of the money would also impact other services. The other thing, too, is uh, people are already starting to sue the government. The FBI Agents Association sent a petition to the White House saying you need to end this thing now because it could threaten national security. What do we know about that? The FBI is saying that they have agents now who are working without funding and they're trying to continue on operations without federal funding. And so they're saying that this is bigger than just an argument over border security. This is now affecting the FBI's operations around the country and around the world. And and, and they are begging the White House and Congress to come to a conclusion on this. We're nearing it to be the longest shutdown in history. And so we're not sure what the implications
implications of this could be if it goes longer than that. We've never seen that before. And so we're seeing these federal agencies coming out and saying, we cannot sit here with no money any longer. Today is the day when federal employees get paid again. A lot of them are seeing zeros on there. The other furloughed workers, I mean, they're just not haven't been working. And then the effects are far reaching after that. Where are Americans going to start feeling these effects? One of the big things I think that we need to be watching is food stamps and how Americans who depend on food stamps could see their aid starting to be reduced. Things like federal housing may be impacted. Farmers, the emergency aid that was approved for farmers because of the trade war between China and the U.S., that could be disrupted. And so it is reaching far greater than just the DMV area. You know, it's reaching into all parts of the country. And I think that that is one of the things that's going to really start putting the pressure on the White House is when this reaches into Trump country in the middle of America, where these farmers are, where people who, you know, are needing federal assistance for everyday living are not getting that assistance any longer. Of course, we know airport security lines are being doubled in time because TSA agents are calling out sick. It's bigger than just people in the D.C. area and people living closely to the White House. It's people who are running out of money to put gas in their cars to get to work because they have to work, you know, they're not getting paid. It's all these kinds of things that are hitting everyday Americans across the country. And the sad reality is that so far, no end in sight for this yet. There's some reports of TSA workers even starting to quit because they can't handle the uncertainty. Food safety is one of them. The Food and Drug Administration has suspended routine inspections of uh, food processing facilities. We just got over this big romaine lettuce E. coli thing that just ended. So, you know, who knows if something could be popping up in the meantime, and we don't know because they're not doing some inspection. So uh, it's a huge problem. Nobody wants to play right now, and it just seems like the shutdown is going to keep on going. So we'll see what happens with it all. Haley Britsky, reporter for Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. As the rideshare economy continues to grow, there's new sectors that are growing out of that industry, and this time they're focusing on kids. There's a growing crop of ride services that are offering rigorously vetted drivers who can transport your kids where they need to go, as well as babysit. There's companies like Kango, Hopskip, Drive. They're trying to be the Uber for kids. They rigorously vet these people. They need to have five years of child care experience. A lot of them end up being mothers. Uh, most of them are women. You need to have a car that's no more than 10 years old. They even work with companies such as ZenDrive, which is a service that uses phone location data to track the speed of your car braking, so how hard you're braking, and whether a driver is texting at the wheel. You know, safety is very key when you're dealing with children. So for more on this, we spoke to Rebecca Heilweil. She's covering this story for Wired. And we start off by talking about how this all works and how much it costs. In my article, I focused on Zoom, Hop, Skip, Drive, and Kango are trying to solve this problem for parents where kids need to get from place to place, especially in the afternoons where they have ballet class, Spanish tutoring, SAT prep, without parents having to be there or hiring a babysitter. And these company solutions is sort of combining aspects of the ride hail, ride share style service where you book rides from contracted drivers, typically using their own cars on an app. Obviously, the big concern for parents would be safety and making sure that the people driving their kids around are really prepared to take on really young passengers. So essentially, these drivers end up being people who have extensive childcare experience themselves and are very often parents themselves as well. For Uber and Lyft, if you're under 18, you're not supposed to be using these services alone. I mean, obviously, if your parent or somebody else is with you, you can jump in a car, no problem, but you can't pick up right. the phone and, and just order a ride if you're under 18. And, you know, some drivers will go ahead and do it anyways. They won't verify the age. They won't check. 
I, I, from your article and just personal experience, you know, everybody's always afraid of that rating that they're going to get or getting knocked down a rating if they mm-hmm. don't take a ride. So a lot of times an Uber ride uh, driver or Lyft driver will just take the ride. When you're dealing with children, it's a totally different set of things you need to worry about. Uber and Lyft will sort of tell their drivers, if you think someone's under their minimum age, try to check their age and really don't don't accept someone who can't prove that they're of the right age to be using that service. And the Uber and Lyft drivers don't aren't really signing up for that either. They don't they're they're not signed up to be babysitters or haven't ensured that they have childcare experience, which is really what these services are providing and say we can guarantee you that safety and the several levels of protection for your kids so you you wouldn't have to rely on the service or hire a babysitter or miss time at work to make sure your kids are getting where they need to go. Talk to us a little right. bit about some of the requirements that these drivers have to go through. Hop, skip, drive, which is one of the companies I covered as an example. You sort of need to have, for them, you need to have five years of child care experience, which most people will meet by saying, I've been a mom, I've been a dad, I know how to take take care of a kid. <laughs> right. they, typically, you have to have, be fingerprinted. You have to, there will be occasional background check. One of the other safety features that's interesting is some of the services use code words so that maybe a child who doesn't have a smartphone wants to confirm that the person who shows up at school picking them up is actually the right person that they've been assigned to. So they might have a code word that they hear from their parents like Apple, like the the driver picking you up tomorrow is going to tell you that code word. So that's how the child themselves can have a little more transparency in making sure that the driver picking them up is the right person. And then you also have vehicle inspections. You have to have a really good driving record as well. And it goes pretty pretty in-depth. And in California, there's also a registry called Trustline, where, and California is where most of these companies are operating right now, where you're sort of registered with a state database of cleared nannies and child transport services. One of the other neat things that these services use is they work with a company called Zendrive, which uses location data to track uh, the speed, mm-hmm. how you brake, whether you're texting at the wheel. So I'm sure that kind of provides some confidence in these drivers, at least when they're transporting their kids around. Definitely. Yeah, it keeps the drivers not necessarily on their toes, but aware that they have someone in the backseat that they're responsible for. So that's definitely an added level of protection. And they get reports, I think, every week or so, at least on hop, skip, drive to make sure to sort of keep them updated at what they could be doing better at and what they're doing well in terms of their driving, driving behavior. Let's talk a little bit about cost and some of the troubles that some of these other companies have had, because for Kango specifically, there's a nine month introductory fee. You got to pay nine dollars a month just to be part of the service. Minimum ride is going to be about sixteen dollars. And they do offer to babysit the kids. Let's say you got to wait till the parent comes home. So that's around 15 to 20 bucks an hour for a single child. And then there's all there's these a few other companies that have tried this already that had difficulties that have been actually shutting down. There are two companies that seem to have tried this and shut down. There was one called Shuttle, which had some issues with registering their drivers for Trustline and there were questions about how it had spent its money and it and it shut down a few years ago. And then there was another service in Massachusetts that was a little bit smaller that was also having issues with permits and sort of eventually ran out of money. Since a lot of these companies are still in the startup phase and they're doing that sort of complicated act of balancing the money that they're paying their drivers and the sort of incentives they offer parents to start, as well as just trying to continue fundraising and proving that their model works. Yeah, it's an interesting sector of this ride hailing industry that is going to keep growing. I mean, you can just see that this is a service that a lot of parents would want to have and would like to use. Rebecca Highwell, freelance writer for Wired, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.